Hi Martin, how you doing? I'm well, how are you? Good, good. This is our first episode of The Science Behind Your Salad in 2022. And we're just into the Chinese New Year. Um, so our topic today is very fitting. Um, and I just wondered, had you made any New Year's resolutions this year? And have you done Veganuary by any chance? I haven't done Veganuary. I could never do Veganuary, I'm afraid. I like meat and I like cheese far too much. Um, I do want to get a bit fitter. So I may cut down a little bit on fatty meats. Um, every time we go to the supermarket, I, I'm always amazed at the increase of the range of substitutes for meat now. So things like your your veggie burgers, or what was a veggie burger, are now becoming far, far more sophisticated. And I have tried some of them, and yeah, I do like them. They do taste very similar to meat. I don't see myself giving up meat. I like it too much. Uh, I think the way we raise meat in this country, in the UK... Is, is very sustainable and so I kind of see a mix in my diet for both of those things but I get the feeling that your question about veganuary hasn't come out of the blue. No you're right you know me too well. The reason I asked you the question is that we're kicking off this year with a really versatile ingredient. It's eaten all over the world and it's consumed in such a myriad of ways. Bet you can't guess what it is. <laughs> I should reveal, really. I'm the producer. I know what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about soy. I think soy is the basis of a lot of those those meat substitutes. I've had soy sauce, obviously. I've had soy milk and I've eaten tofu. Um, tofu hasn't always grabbed me as the most inspirational foodstuff. Um, but I guess there are more things than you can, that you can do with it than I actually do. Yeah, I think if you put tofu into the hands of somebody from Southeast Asia, it's a very different experience. Well, I'm looking forward to finding out exactly what that experience is like and maybe, you know, convincing me to eat more because I know it's pretty good for you as well. Let's revisit after this podcast and see what you think. In today's episode, I'm hoping to shed some light on the crop. As with most of our episodes, we're starting with the most important part of any crop which is eating it. So, Martin, please keep listening. I'm going to change your view of tofu, I promise. And to do that, I'm joined by Hong Yu Wan. Hong Yu is based in China, about an hour outside of Shanghai. He's a managing director of a food company that makes a range of soy-based products. Hi, Hong Yu, good to see you. Good to see you. We're here today talking about soy. Okay, soy is edible seeds, pea family that's grown worldwide. It is a very good and rich resources of um, plant protein. And Hongyu, how is it consumed by humans? How do we eat soy? So many different ways of eating soy. Fresh or dried or frozen, as the seed, it could be consumed. And also with the pod, we call it um, edamame. The, the peeled um, kernel is called mukimami. It's a snack item people eat with beer or as a appetizer. Uh, of course, there are many other ways of eating soy to process the soy into tofu, which is uh, Chinese origin, but also consumed in Asian countries and in other parts of the world. When tofu is young, soft, young tofu, it's like pudding. It's tender and you blend it with sugar or you go with salt. When tofu is firmer, and they cut and slice them, 
and they stir fry it with different spices. And also, there are fermented tofu. You cook the tofu, let it sit outside, like making cheese. Smells bad sometimes, like cheese, but it tastes great. And you mentioned just now, Hongyu, about protein. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, the soybean itself is fifty percent. I think is of its meal is of protein. So it's taken as for many. Food items as the source of proteins. And we talked about tofu just now.、Um, how is it made? Well, that's a that's a old ancient、um, uh, food item that was from maybe a thousand years ago when people started to make tofu. It's actually started from dried soybeans. The dried soybeans is、uh, ground into powder, cooked. Diluted soybean powder is then coagulated into kind of a curd. Then people just press the water out of the of the curd and let it、um, firm up and make into different kinds of、uh, of tofu product. You can add spices, salt,、uh, or different ways of cooking to make、uh, any way of flavor you want. Soy is also being used for a lot of plant-based foods now, like burgers. What other meat substitute foods are you aware of that it's being used for, and how do you feel about that? I did、uh, try some of the these products, and、uh, I quite liked it. And、um, of course, it's meant to be healthier for people, and also more environment friendly. It's also about choice. Soy is a good protein alternative for those who choose not to eat meat. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, as Hongyu has explained, soy is very much a superfood. Soybeans have very high protein, a content of about 38%. Foods containing soy may reduce the risk of a range of health problems, including cardiovascular disease, stroke, and coronary heart disease. Soybeans contain antioxidants and phytonutrients that are linked to various health benefits. What's more, they're high in fibre content, which is really good for your gut health. So that's how it can be eaten, plus the history of the crop. But I'm keen to find out more about how it grows and where. Time for a bit of Hongyu's expertise, and he is very pleased to share his first insight. And you're speaking to a Chinese who is very proud to say that the soybeans actually originated in China over five thousand years ago. Mythology. Tells people that、uh, it was from China, by a ancient, the could be the second emperor of China, called Shenong.、Uh, he found this plant. This emperor was believed to the to be the、um, starter of agricultural society in China. He tasted and digested over three hundred or more different plants or herbs of the earth, and he's. Believed to have a transparent stomach, so people see what's going on inside him. So he himself saw the the plants inside his stomach, so he could tell whether this herb or plant is healthy or is bad or is poison. He found this soybean plant that could be eaten as food, and、um, just brought it to the farmers. His theories formed the basis for Chinese traditional medicine. Then it grows for thousands of years,、um, 
and uh, into different parts of the world. You've touched a little bit on the folklore of where soy came from. What is the cultural significance of the crop to Southeast Asians in particular? Culturally, it's taken as a very Asian plant, very Asian source of protein or source of daily meat. Soybean itself, the kernel or, or, or the seeds itself, is eaten in so many Asian families. Not only China, but uh, Koreans, uh, Vietnamese, uh, Japanese, they all eat soybeans raw or processed. I'm really interested now in, in where soy is grown. So what's the geographical spread of soy globally? And, and also, what conditions are best for soy to grow in? The soy started from China and it uh, spread it uh, to U.S. I think around the, in early 1800s. Now, U.S. is actually the largest soybean producer of the world, producing one third of the world's soy. And then it, it went to uh, South America, like Brazil, Argentina. They are like the second, third largest grower of soybeans now in the world. China could be the next one. And India is also a big producer of soys. You've explained where it's grown. How is it grown? You know, it's quite easy crop. Uh, it's uh, mild weather. Other The soy itself doesn't need fertile soils because it produces nitrogen for the soil. In the U.S., it's is growing in large scale by machine harvest, machine planting. And in the more agricultural areas of U.S., you can see vast areas of machine sold, machine harvested soy. And in China, too. Global soy production is huge. In 2018, 349 million tons of the crop was grown. That's 700% more than 50 years ago, which is staggering. And it makes the crop the sixth largest in the world after sugar, corn, wheat, rice and potatoes. There are 35 countries who produce more than 100,000 tonnes of the crop every year. The vast majority of soya is grown in Argentina, Brazil and the US, which between them account for 80% of global production. Large-scale soybean production in the USA did not commence until the 20th century, but it was there in 1996 that the first GM crops were cultivated. Gustavo Lenardi is a soybean grower for SLC Agricola, one of the biggest agricultural companies in Brazil. Gustavo is superbly placed to tell me more about how soybeans are currently cultivated to get the best yields. In this season, season 21-22, SLC Agricola is, is planting and harvesting 670,000 hectares. So we have a, a physical area of around 340,000 hectares. And over these 340,000 hectares of, of physical area, we also do double crop, amounting to 670,000 hectares of crops. Roughly is 50% of this is soybean. All the farms, all the operations are in the Cerrado region. Nowadays, Brazil is planting around uh, 40 million hectares of soybean. Uh, it is the main crop for the country in terms of uh, exports. We start planting soy uh, in se September or October, depending on the region. And, and depending on the, on the window of rains, the window of rains starts on September 
and it goes until May, depending on the region. Uh, but from May until September, there is no rain. It's dry season. But you should, you must harvest it in January. It's all about tractors and and, and big, big machinery for, for planting, uh, to, to put the seed on the ground. In general, in Brazil, uh, you have three types of, of growers. We have very small size growers in the south of the country where the, the, the agriculture uh, began in the past. And uh, you have more successions, more generations, and then the size of the farms, like in Europe. And then when you go to the Cerrado region, you have very, very big farms. We have farms that uh, will range from 25,000 hectares up to 67, 70,000 hectares. In average, we have 22 farms and we plant 670,000 hectares. Very large scale farming. And then, of course, we use very big tractors, very big planters, big harvesters as well. So uh, it's all about large scale farming and, and efficiency and technology. And we apply a lot of innovation and technology when we buy this kind of machinery to be more sustainable and to be more efficient. By using uh, big machinery, we depend less on human beings, but we still uh, are very labor intensive. For example, we have an indicator uh, that shows to us that we have today 200 hectares per employee. Uh, the majority of our outputs uh, uh, we sell to tradings like ADM, Cargill, Bung, uh, Louis Dreyfus, the, the big ones, the top five. Then it goes to BRF Foods, it goes to JBS, to big companies that, that uh, raise chicken and pork and beef cattle. Uh, they have to buy a lot of soybean and corn as well. It is interesting that more than three quarters of global soy is actually fed to livestock for meat and dairy production, whilst a proportion of the rest is used for biofuels in industry or for vegetable oils. Just 7% of soy is used directly for human food products such as tofu, soy milk, edamame beans and tempeh. But what are the big challenges that soy farmers face? And yes, it's time to hear about a familiar foe, the nematode. And it will come as no surprise that Gustavo is very familiar with this hungry little worm. Nematodes is a, a reality uh, in, in the Brazilian farms. We use uh, varieties of soybeans that are being developed in many uh, research companies, private and public companies that are researching varieties with nematode resistant. So it's important to know what breed of nematode you have in your soil to apply the best variety with the higher resistance for, for these uh, parasites. If you don't control them, uh, the damage is very high. Easily you can lose one or 1.2 tons per hectare. Another point is, if you have a plot, a part of the farm that you have nematodes, when you be sowing the seed there, after you conclude the sowing, you have to wash all the machinery before going to another part that is nematode free. Because if you don't do it, you bring nematodes from the, from the, let's say, from the sick part to the healthy part of the farm. 
So they reside in the soil and then they attack various crops and plants. So just about anything that you can find in the world will be fed on by a nematode. In a previous episode of The Science Behind Your Salad, we heard the incredible fact that four out of five animals on the planet are nematodes. Despite the fact they are tiny and barely visible to the naked eye, there are lots and lots of them. And despite being so small, they can be devastating to crops. Soybean crops are attacked by two main nematodes, the soybean cyst nematode and the root lesion nematode. And these two tiny little worms in their vast numbers are estimated to cause around $4.5 billion worth of losses every year. And so finding a solution to control them has been a holy grail for decades. Something that Mike McCarville from BSF has been searching for for years. Well, there is some good news. He and his fellow worm warriors may have found a way of controlling the soybean cyst node and the root lesion nematodes as well. Yeah, one of the largest issues with nematodes is that once they're present, it's almost impossible to get them out of a field. So we joke that there's basically three types of farmers, especially for soybeans in the U.S. Uh, we have those that have soybean cyst nematode, those that don't know they have soybean cyst nematode, and then the third, those that will get soybean cyst nematode in the future. So once it's in that field, there's no way to get rid of it. It's really difficult to get any type of control to that nematode. So any pest that's in the soil tends to be pretty safe from most of our tactics for controlling pests. And so we're left with basically using the plant to deliver whatever control option we want. For us in the U.S. and in Brazil growing uh, soybean, we've relied on a lot of native resistance genes from the plant. So those that evolve naturally with the soybean plant, we actually discovered these in the 1950s and then soon moved them into commercial soybean varieties. And then as kind of the mid-90s hit, it became basically standard practice to use resistant varieties uh, when growing soybeans. The problem is, is that anytime you do one thing for a really long time, because it works really, really well, uh, the nematode is just not going to sit still. It adapts and it evolves and starts to overcome these genes. And so we run into this situation where we had a great management tactic that worked, but we only had one. And so then the pest adapted. So for us, for our work, it's how do we get new types of resistance into the plant uh, so that we can make sure that a farmer never has a bad year. When we talk about Brazil and the Cerrado region, they're dealing with multiple nematodes. Uh, soybean cyst nematode, root knot nematode. Uh, there's one called reniform. But one of their biggest issues is root lesion nematode. This is a really big problem because there are no native resistance genes for this nematode. So us at BASF, you know, we're looking at there are bacteria in the soil that can actually infect and attack a nematode. And so we're looking at how can we bring that resistance from that bacteria and get it into the roots of a plant so that we can control a nematode that the farmer really doesn't have a way to control right now with root lesion nematode. You know, we can take major pests that cause a problem for a farmer, you know, where the natural uh, genome of the plant doesn't have any protection or any solutions. And uh, in science, we can find ways to bring in other types of resistance into that plant. Yeah, that's just incredible. It's keeping one step ahead of the game, isn't it? A bit like antibiotic resistance. 
Yeah, so you always have to be planning for, you know, what's today's problem and then what will be tomorrow's problem. And and talking about tomorrow's problems, how does your work tie in with the needs of um, farmers producing more efficiently and also farming with the climate in mind? Yeah, so that's one of the large challenges that everybody talks about going forward is how are we going to produce enough food for a growing population? So uh, we need to produce more, which means that we need to limit losses. For nematodes, one of the challenges is that when you get into situations like uh, a drought, most nematodes tend to reproduce a lot better and have a much, much larger impact on the plant. So we have to be ready so that we can have resistance built into that plant so that you know, when drought hits, it's not the end of the world. We're still going to maintain yield that year. But with nematodes, we're going to keep that population low so that the next year, you know, we're not going into a situation where you have, you know, a trillion nematodes in your field. And it's vital that the significance of Mike and his team's work is not underestimated. This is a big breakthrough. Yeah, so it's a massive deal for the agricultural community. So we've had resistance that we've taken uh, from bacteria, from bacilli. And we brought it into crops to protect against insects, both above ground and below ground. We've not been able to do this for nematodes, which is a huge deal because there are many crops that have resistance to sedentary nematodes. So we talk about nematodes in a couple different ways. Those that are sedentary and sit still, and those that are migratory and keep moving through the root system throughout their entire life. There is very few, if any, sources of resistance for these migratory ones. So when we can bring in resistance from a bacteria that can affect both the sedentary ones and the migratory plant parasites, this opens up a whole new realm of ways to control nematodes. Now we have some real options available. So Mike, looking 50 years hence, what sort of work will you be doing? Yeah, so uh, today, you know, we're bringing in this new type of resistance to crop plants. So I think in the future, we're going to see a lot of people try and uh, bring this to other crops to provide benefits. Uh, one of the unique things that we're going to be doing uh, is taking the native resistance to the plant, our new uh, resistance gene, and combining them. And so that's really a new concept of how do we bring, you know, what science is bringing forward, what the plant uh naturally evolved, how we put them together to come up with a really robust solution, uh, stacking those together, providing really resilient resistance. And then I think it's going to be those types of concepts of how do we leverage what the natural plant genome is bringing, and then how do we leverage what science can bring and combining those to really provide a unique solution for the farmer uh, and for the consumer. The success that Mike and the rest of his team have achieved is monumental as farmers around the world do their very best to safeguard their crops. With a crop so nutritionally beneficial and opening up new markets and encouraging parts of the world to grow the crop, where they have traditionally relied on less nutritional plants, is a real opportunity and an incentive. And this is what the Soybean Innovation Lab is working to do right now. The lab is part of the University of Illinois and its aim is to provide researchers, the private sector, non-governmental organisations and funders operating across the entire value chain, the critical information and technology needed for the crop to be a success in Africa, a continent where soy has not been grown historically. 
Peter Goldsmith is director of the lab and one of Peter's main jobs is to inform those wishing to cultivate soybeans. The Soybean Innovation Lab operates in uh, 28 countries, so we have operations all over, and so we have partners all over who are learning about soy, growing soy, and so on and so forth. Demand um, uh, is extremely strong. There are huge deficit regions uh, throughout, but especially in East Africa, which is pulling a lot of soybean from the south into, in, into East Africa. So demand and prices are extremely good. So every farmer uh, can sell every bean that they grow. A perfect crop for helping to kickstart agricultural operations where they are most needed. It's a relatively new crop. Uh, Africa produces uh, less than 1% uh, um, of the world's soybean. Uh, South Africa is the dominant largest producer in Africa, producing half of Africa's production, uh, followed by Nigeria, Zambia, and Benin. Um, but the levels are very low. It's a new crop for farmers. It's a new crop for extension. It's a new crop for research uh, in terms of, when we think about it, in terms of a mainstream crop. Uh, Southern Africa, East Africa, West Africa, yields will uh, easily approach what farmers in Brazil, Argentina, the U.S., are, the metric is, is three tons per hectare. We have producers uh, able to do that. Small holders who don't use uh, standard practice, use traditional practice rather than standard practice, don't achieve near that level, but using standard practice um, uh, uh, they can achieve two, three tons per hectare. The number one challenge is the thinking about soy as a uh, system crop. You just can't hand a farmer seed and they go away because they'll plant it in a traditional way at 70,000 seeds per, per hectare, soybean requires 300,000 seeds per hectare. Soybean needs to be planted in narrow rows. We have seven standard practices that when farmers apply them uh, with seed that germinates well, and they will achieve yields in the area of two tons per hectare. So it's not a high-tech problem. It's an implementation problem. To move from a staple to a commercial crop is not easy. It's a lot of risk because half of a commercial crop means you've got, you've got real problems. Half of a staple crop at harvest, meaning if you have a, a crop failure, at least you have half a crop you can eat. Whereas soy is, is a novel crop and it's a novel food ingredient. It's a novel food. Farmers bear a lot of risk when they move into a new crop say like soy, but at the same time, uh, we have data from farmers all over that are collaborators working with us. And you're talking about net income, net of labor, net of inputs, on average about $800 per hectare. There's no other crop that comes close to that in traditional crops. Most of the soybean is produced for livestock feed. There are a number of countries, Nigeria and Benin, especially that have very strong cultures of soy foods and soy ingredients. The key is 
is introducing soy into the cuisine because just adopting uh, Asian uh, consumption patterns is, is, is not as uh, near-term or realistic. It's really as uh, an ingredient into school lunch, into the national dishes, into uh, local retail food carts, food, uh, food trucks, things like that. Soy, like most crops, has a large carbon footprint, and so it's vital farmers do their bit to reduce the environmental impact. And soybeans need land and lots of it. As areas of natural land are converted to soy plantations, biodiversity can be lost and there's a real risk of soil erosion and water pollution. However, the carbon footprint of soy in the form of a food such as tofu is very low. It's around 100 grams of greenhouse gas emitted per serving. That compares to more than 300 grams for rice and more than seven kilograms for beef. Soy's high protein content means that it can deliver a large volume of protein per hectare, more than one tonne per hectare on average globally. Increasing yields on existing farmland will be important for the world to feed its growing population and will reduce carbon impact and protect existing biodiversity. Farmed sustainably, soy can play a major role in achieving the world's ambitious nutritional and environmental goals. Achieving these ambitious and essential environmental targets is exactly what Dr. Tsui Ramirez Hernandez is attempting. Climate smart farming is truly on the horizon. Growers are doing already an amazing job, right? So they, they are already doing a, a, a very good job. And here is really just to identify, you know, like how can we help them uh, to become better? On one side, growers need to continue producing, you know, safe, affordable food for all of us. And at the same time, they need to continue producing in under the frame of the planetary boundaries. So that means that we definitely, you know, are working to support growers to reduce their impact on the environment. We have said that we are going to be supporting growers to become more resilient and to be more sustainable and at the same time access, you know, the benefits of doing that. So what I'm what I'm trying to say is really, you know, growers are doing already a great job, right? And in addition to that, they are also delivering environmental services. So why not being able to support them to actually get second revenue streams from those environmental services they are anyway already doing? So when we look at, at climate smart farming and, and very specifically uh, on carbon farming, we do try to see the whole topic in a more holistic view, right? So carbon is one piece of the whole sustainability uh, you know, agenda that you can drive in terms of, uh, you know, more sustainable agriculture really in practice. But it's just one part. We want to see, you know, like more additional aspects, you know, like water management. We want also to see elements on biodiversity. And I think all these elements are definitely fully ingrained on the commitments we have done uh, back in 2020, you know, like how to continue supporting growers to be successful in the long run, to reduce environmental impact, and actually, you know, to, to, to make a living out of this. Chi, give me some examples of how you're working with farmers and groups of farmers in the different regions that you operate in as a business. We have, for instance, in Europe and uh, the, the, the farm networks. And here, of course, our European colleagues are definitely working hand in hand with growers, providing innovation. And what we are aiming to do now, not only in Europe, but also in other parts of the world, is actually to continue engaging with growers and bringing, you know, the carbon farming pilots to life. 
So this is going to be, the pilot is really one of the pieces of the whole carbon farming program that we are going to be launching this year. And those pilots are really to implement certain changes, you know, in farm operations in order to actually become more resilient to increase soil health, which is very important. So we are going to be having more engagement with the growers on this topic and, and trying to support them, you know, in, in the sustainability journey too. At the end of the day, what is really important is the transition itself and the benefits that the growers are going to have in, in, in their farm too. And of course, we totally understand that agriculture has the potential to actually sequester a lot of carbon in the soil, has the potential to become more sustainable. And, you know, it's, it's just a beautiful story, you know, in addition to generate and, and produce the food we are eating every day, also actually to have, you know, a major contribution uh, to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. What's at stake for agriculture if we don't get our emissions down, our biodiversity up and our practices more aligned with where the world needs to be? It's really a matter of what is going to be our future. And we fully understand agriculture is going to go, you know, to a tremendous uh, transformations in the years to come. And of course, digital, artificial intelligence are going to be important, super important for actually speeding up the whole transformation. And we need to always understand growers are at the heart of this transformation. So we are here to support them, to help them to go that transition. What is very important for them is also the future of their land, right? So how to protect their land? Because this is the future of their, you know, their families too. It means that protecting their land, they are protecting their future too. So I think this is, this is super important. We have committed ourselves you know, as agricultural solutions to help them to reduce by minus 30% the CO2 footprint in 2030. And this is all around strategic crops. So it's part of that. We have wheat, we have canola, you know, we have corn. So we are now doing a lot of efforts to really actually identify the right combinations of, you know, like our tools, all our technologies to bring that to growers in order for them to, to actually reduce their carbon footprint in farm operations. And if I'm kind of get, you know, like a, a great plate of salad with a, you know, reduced carbon footprint, you know, like actually that supported the improving the quality of life in, in certain parts of the world, I really going to be all for that. You know, this is, this is exactly what we believe it's, 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 it's part of the better deal, um, you know, concept that we want to drive forward. It sounds like a brilliant target to aim for producing not just soybeans, but other crops such as wheat, rice and canola in a sustainable way that can make a great impact on climate targets. But when we look to the future, environmental activities are not the only aspect of farming that farmers are focusing on. We thought we'd end this episode with Gustavo Lunardi from SLC Agricola again, who's farming in Brazil. Sustainability is one of the key considerations for the incoming decades. And that stretches, as Gustavo explains, beyond the farm gate. Sustainability for SLC Agricola is, is a part of our strategy. We, we have been uh, certificating our farms regarding environmental, regarding labor, regarding all the social liabilities. And we have, uh, today we have 15 farms of our 22 farms that are totally certificated, uh, including some uh, certifications of sustainability from Europe. And, and we apply all the, the techniques 
to be as much sustainable we can. For example, no-till. So 95% of our production is no-till soil. Uh, we have a lot of indicators that we can measure our, our carbon balance. And we have some targets that are public to be neutral in, in, in our carbon balance. We invest a lot in the communities around our farms. Uh, we invest in school, we invest in hospitals. The SLC holding that owns SLC Agricola uh, since 2019 has an institute only to invest in education in Brazil. So uh, we are very committed with uh, sustainability, uh, with ESG, uh, and we are replacing chemicals uh, with biological products. We keep the natural enemies and we have more equilibrium in the system. Uh, we have to provide education to the kids of our employees, and we are doing this. We have bus to, to bring the, the, the kids to the, to the nearest schools in each farms. We are uh, providing to the adults in our farms that they don't have the literacy. Another example is we are applying a lot of technology, innovation, sensors, all the technology that is coming to the farm. Uh, in the future, we will have a lot of drones flying over your crop. We'll have a lot of robots uh, walking between the rows and the drones and the robots will be able to say to us what we have to apply per plant is uh, is not useful if you if you, your employee cannot use it cannot understand it so we are making uh, what we say here in all the farms we have a, a space a room a physical room uh, that we say uh, digital inclusion we call it digital inclusion so besides to know Portuguese, to know how to write, to know how to speak. This is not enough. You have to have digital inclusion. You have to, to teach them how to use a, a, a tablet, how to use an iPhone, how to use technology. And all the operators, the machinery operators, they have to, they have to do these courses as well. So it's, it's huge investments in education, in digital inclusion, uh, to be able to, to use the technology, to increase efficiency, to increase yields, and, and to use less inputs. To use less inputs is very important for us, not only because of the financial part, which is very important, but we can say that today is more important to be sustainable than to be profitable. What a way to end the episode about soybean production, a pioneering way to integrate environmental, social, and governance, the ESG Gustavo was talking about there, with sustainability and new ways of using precision farming to reduce inputs and in turn becoming climate smart when farming. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad with me, Jane Craigie, brought to you by BASF and Fresh Air Production. Be sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.